0: This podcast was created on Messy. Create your own show today at Messy.fm. Welcome to Pace and Freedom. I am your host, James Pace. And before we get started with this amazing episode, I got a few announcements to make. So today, I will have two episodes launched. I had the amazing opportunity to have two special, amazing guests come on my podcast this Saturday, and what I was planning to do is launch one this Monday, and launch another one next Monday, but I felt that it was too important to not launch both of them this Monday. The next announcement is you will be able to get access of this episode in video, uncut, unedited completely raw on my Patreon page if you're a patron and I'm allowing any of the patron tiers to get access to these videos so you can pay as little as $1 a month and you will get access to these two videos and again they're uncut unedited you'll get to see me stumble and you can laugh at me if you like and get to see the conversation at its most organic state. Now, for this episode, I have special guest, Cody Connor, and he's a great friend of mine. I met him back when I was in the Navy. He was also in the Navy. We were actually both transitioning out of the Navy, and we are both recovering alcoholics, if you will. And this topic means a lot to me because I recently just celebrated my five years of sobriety, which I believe is a huge milestone. And I wanted to discuss with somebody else that understands and has been sort of in the same shoes as I have and discuss this topic and discuss how it affected us, how did we realize that we were in this predicament, and what we did to start a recovering process. But I also want our listeners to realize that Even though we know that alcohol is not something for us, that doesn't mean that we believe in any sort of prohibition of alcohol. We know that every person is different. And we kind of extended that view to any other illicit drug. And that prohibition will never stop addiction. If anything, it encourages more addiction, it encourages more violence, and encourages a black market. And a very true danger to society. So with that said, you can hear the whole conversation. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget there is another episode. Episode 7 with special guest Grayson Cash Jackson, libertarian candidate for the 2018 governor race of Illinois. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome to Pace and Freedom Podcast. Glad Happy to, to have here. you on. Uh, Cody, go ahead and kind of uh,
1: introduce yourself and we'll go from there. Uh, Cody, uh, did five years in the Navy. Uh, been sober for about a year and a half now. Um, the kind of anniversary date's March 27th, so I'm not sure how many months after a year now. Um, but now, doing the veteran thing, going to school full-time, and hanging out.
0: That's the way to go, man. Uh, you moved out to Texas, so that's a pretty veteran-friendly state. So,
1: Yeah, it's uh, very nice with the benefits and everything. I'm actually, we, my wife and kids and I just got back from Colorado uh, two days ago. And we went out there, spent a couple days in the cabin, uh, I went and talked to the advisors over at Colorado State, and we're looking at moving in the next 10, 11 months when this lease is up. Uh, uh, nice. Been Very happy with uh, the, the benefits and the way Texas treats its veterans. Um, just looking for somewhere else, you know?
0: Yeah, I hear you. Same here. Like, eventually, we'll find a, another home other than San Diego. Uh, so... This uh episode I wanted to uh talk about um you know alcohol dependency and uh you and I were we served together and uh we used to have a lot of great conversations about you know mental health and you know at times politics and we, we agreed on a lot of things which was pretty cool. Uh year and a half sober, that's that's a, a big deal, man. I know how hard it is. Uh, I've worked up to five years. My anniversary just passed on August second. It was my fifth uh, anniversary. So, congratulations to you on on reaching it that uh, far. I know how hard it is. Uh, there's a there's a big stigma with what is. What are your, your thoughts on it?
1: Uh, my thoughts are still, uh, I guess, kind of developing. You could say uh, it's the whole addiction, I also had a, a pretty bad accident that you were aware of, uh, came with a coma, severe TBI, but uh, that and my addiction really kind of coincided. Um, and it fast, it sparked a fascination with the brain that is yet to be satisfied. Um, uh, caused me to pursue a degree in a neuroscience and to try and get a better answer. But my personal belief is, uh, I don't, it kind of find fall into the gray area in between the disease model and uh, free will, lack of free will. Um, There's definitely, in my opinion, you know, predispositions um, can be more susceptible um, to that kind of attraction. Um, I believe that there is always, always a uh, mental underlying mental health issue that is causing to seek this uh, release this, um, alle- alleviating source. And I don't know, uh, there, there's more to it than a person. Obviously somebody that's losing their wife, kids home. I mean, you know, some of the deep holes that this can take you in and we've heard all the horror stories. Um, somebody, you can't tell me that the person doesn't want to quit or it can't recognize that it's completely derailing their life. Um, but they still can't you know rationally logically you can sit there and reason with it and see that it it's ruining your life but you can't stop necessarily or it's not immediate it's not just like all right i'm done so so there is more to it and um so like i said i kind of like i guess in summary i kind of like to ride the line between a combination of multiple things i believe there's always mental health i believe there is predispositions um and, and it is a a big part of your environment Uh, you know, your social environment, your culture, how you were raised, all of these things play a key role. So I don't think we can put a finger on it's a disease. I I like the disease model because what it's done for insurance purposes and treatment purposes, it's kind of given it uh, more acceptable and uh, more acceptability, but, I I don't believe it to truly be a disease, so to speak.
0: Right, and maybe not completely a disease. I mean, we kind of see mental health, and like you said, to put it in terms for people to be able to understand better and to uh, treat better. You know, we use that that word disease a little loosely. Uh, I like to compare it a lot to like somebody that, for example, goes through obesity and. They could go to the doctor, the doctor can tell them that they're obese and they have a, a problem with obesity, it could lead to diabetes, but for some reason they can't take control of, you know, their diet and have a hard time kind of accepting that, hey, if I don't do something, it's going to kill me. But there is, I do believe that there is a, a, a certain degree of um, free will factor in their uh you know, unless you make that decision that you're going to do something about it, it just kind of leads you deeper and deeper into the the deep end.
1: So as I, I guess I, I should have specified on the free will, so to speak. Uh, the the My idea of the free will coming into play isn't necessarily in the action itself. The free will um, can be used in changing your environment, changing your situation, you know. Uh, not going to the bar every day or changing your setting, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's a great example And this one I turn to a lot is, you know, turn on TLC and watch My 600 Hundred Pound Life. And th- th- right. th- there's a clear example of somebody that is having a doctor tell them, you will die if you keep doing this. And they believe that, but yet they can't stop. it's and that's even you know with the alcohol and stuff it's hard because it's less visible you know you can have high functioning alcoholics and and even not high you don't even have to be high functioning and you can the the effects are still can still be hidden much easier than 600 pounds
0: (laughs) yeah exactly and it's a lot more hidden it's a lot more acceptable it seems like again is there's with that stigma that still exists, I don't think it's maybe as much as it used to be, but that somebody that drinks, they, there's no problem with them. It's just that they overdrink and that they're just not responsible. And that's why they're the way they are instead of seeing, okay, well, there's a problem with that person, you know, and they they might need help. Uh the other stigma also is that they're just bad people and they just choose to make bad decisions uh on you know and not good ones. And I forgot now. I don't know where my train of thought was going with that. But uh for for you though, what what did you feel? Well, let's go back a little bit. Uh let's talk a little bit more about like kind of your history and then i'll go a little bit over my history as well like of alcoholism what what did did you see that was going wrong like what were the the signs for you Uh, obviously you know you said that you had that accident and that you were in a coma and you had several injuries from from that but i mean you do see some of the other signs right now now you see you can look back and see what the signs were right
1: yeah, uh, there was, it was my only means of uh, of alleviating stress, uh, emotional, physical. Uh, that was the real thing that it, the accident wasn't, the accident made me aware of my dependence on it. Um, and that was about all I did. It just kind of gave me a good enough view of my life. You know, they say near death experiences have a tendency to change people and I can attest they do. Uh, It just made me, you know, self-aware and analyze my life and what I was doing and how I was doing it. I had a lot of time to sit around and think. And there there was, I was emancipated at 16. Um, The whole sob story, childhood, was out on my own. Um, And alcohol was always present um, from a very young age. And just culturally growing up, that was kind of always taught as a valuable way of solving your problem, so to speak, you know, um, a good way to escape. And that kind of just got rooted into the subconscious and then started carrying over to all the time. It was, uh, the idea that I'm having a, even, even when I wasn't drinking, you know, I'm having a good time, but I could be having an even better time. It was just this, yeah this this perspective that alcohol could always enhance. It could always make fun times better. It could make bad times better. That was the seeing that and becoming aware of that is what kinda got everything going.
0: Right.
1: I think for me kind of the same
0: thing, you know, I, I used it a lot as um, self medication. You know, I I think I realized I realized that of my depression before I realized my Uh, my alcohol dependency, Um, you know, it was after I I had a, I had suicidal ideology that I I realized that, you know, I was depressed, and, but I didn't realize that how much alcohol did play effect into that, and also how I was using it as um, self-medication, and I think, like, during that time I just felt that it's the same way you did like it's just I'm just drinking it to kind of relax better I just uh, you know just to make my life a little bit easier you know it got to so bad to the point where I was pretty much going out every night to go drink and making really bad decisions and to the point you know where I could have hurt other people or hurt myself and I think my wake-up call was when uh, I was stationed. And that's where I I started getting sober was when I was stationed in uh, Great Lakes uh, or started my, like, treatment. And and I woke up in, you know, some (laughs) stranger's house. I don't know how I ended up there. Uh, I don't know how I got in. The, uh, The owners didn't know how I got in. I just woke up on their couch. They didn't hear anything at night how I managed to get in there. And, uh, you know, th- this guy could have ruined my, my, my naval career. He could have ruined my life if he wanted to. Um, and instead he, you know, said, hey, you know, I think you need help. Like, you need to do something to, uh, you know, to fix yourself. Um, so he let me go. I mean, after, you know. Giving me a good, you know, yelling and, you know, threatening to call the cops and threatening to uh, shoot me. Uh, he uh, let me go. And that's where I realized, man, I, I, I need help because I can't keep doing these things. You know, it's going to get to the point where it's going to kill me one day. And uh, so that's kind of my my story. Uh, with I started drinking at 18 Uh, I was a a late bloomer compared to maybe a lot others but I picked it up pretty easily Uh, there was no problem with me uh, starting to drink Uh, I remember my first time drinking uh, some friends that were 21 managed to sneak me into a bar and sneak me drinks and uh, my very first drink ever was a Roman coke and right after that bar uh you know after a few rum and cokes cuz i really, really really loved the taste of that and uh whiskey and right after we went to a uh a, a frat party and it was just so easy for me to just keep continue drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking i didn't really i mean obviously it phased me for cuz i just started but it wasn't like it wasn't hard or I couldn't like, I could continue drinking if it wasn't just because, you know, we cut it off and went back home so we can go back to work the next day. You know, I could have continued probably all throughout the next day if I wanted to. And, um, that's kind of my, my alcohol history.
1: The self-medicating, uh, I, I've yet to, that's one of my reason my big beliefs is there's always an underlying mental health issue. Uh, because I've yet to meet an alcoholic or addict that is completely fulfilled and joyful with life and is addicted right. to something. Uh, there, I believe it, it's self-medicating for all addicts and alcoholics. There is something that, and that in turn is kind of how I believe you, you fix it, is you find the root cause. You find the root of the depression. You find the root of the anxiety. You find the root of this trauma You address it, you face it, you deal with it. You beating around the bush and just trying to fix the uh, the addiction itself. That's like they always say with the disease model. You know, you're treating the symptoms, you're not fixing it. Um, Right. You can can fix all the symptoms, but there's still that underlying skeleton. There's still that skeleton in the closet, and it's going to be there until you address it.
0: It's like, for example, if you say you know you have cancer or a tumor, and you're just treating all the uh, you know the uh, the side effects are the symptoms of that. You know, say you have a brain tumor, you're only treating the the headaches. You're only treating, you know, those things, but you never treat the tumor. Basically, the,
1: the, uh, there's no cases as far as I'm aware of of just spontaneous addiction. Uh, there, right. There's there's always a cause, and that's where the uh, the cure lies as well. With your can- cancer analogy, same thing, you know you can, you can get rid of all the symptoms, but you're not cancer free. You want to go cancer free. You got to get, address the tumor.
0: Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about like kind of what helped you in your, in your journey. How did like, what, cause we talked about, you know, kind of dealing with the underlying issue. So I'm assuming that was one of the things that you had to do, uh, is facing, you know, the root cause. Um, what else kind of helped you? through that journey? Uh,
1: surprisingly, being in a bar all the time. I uh, grew up in a bar. I always had this big attraction to pool. Um, and I kind of, about the time I started really realizing I need to get sober, addressed this alcohol thing. Um, nice woman uh, asked me to join her pool league. And I started joining the, the I joined the pool league, pool team started playing pool league and that then put me in a bar setting you know at least once a week if not more to practice but it it disconnected the the drinking the need to drink because i didn't want to drink because i wasn't as good at the pool i cared about pool loved it and so it started it kept me in that environment but then kind of eased into disconnecting the alcohol in it Uh, that was one of the big things so so playing pool and because i disagreed with a handful, my, for my personal sobriety, I disagreed with a handful of the AA, the 12-step, you know, models, rules. And um, being from Texas, the possibility of me completely getting alcohol out of my life was pr- pretty pretty difficult. And um, so getting into the bar and not drinking, and, but having a reason to not drink. You know, I felt like right. did a lot of work in the kind of subconscious Uh, association of needing the alcohol seeing alcohol wanting alcohol thirsting for it you know the the triggers and all that stuff that we talk about or people talk about I didn't really get a lot of the triggers because I was I initially started my sobriety in a bar (laughs) as funny as it sounds I'm sure there's a bunch of songs made after that but that was kind of what allowed me to I feel like made it easier in the long run now I have no problem Wi-Fi having a drink. Alcohol can be in the fridge, and there, there's none of the white-knuckling mentality. Um, that helped a lot kind of start, get the ball rolling, so to speak, and then um, a purpose. Uh, right. I found a purpose with uh, this whole neuroscience thing. It, it fascinates me. It, it excites me. It intrigues me. Uh, it, it, it's it's put tons of goals uh, ahead of me to work towards. Um right. And... and Alcohol, I, I finally had realized, you know, alcohol impedes all of the things I want. And I know that I've been to a bunch of AA meetings and stuff. So I know these conversations take place all the time of like, I see how bad alcohol is affecting me. And um, you got to you got to convince the subconscious of all of that and right. the neuroscience and then the the bar, me playing pool league. Those two things kind of in combination helped me just disassociate, just disconnect, gain some distance from it um, psychologically. And and then once I had uh, it kind of worked out to where I had a good three, four months sober, um, went to Las Vegas for a huge pool tournament. And my birthday is in March, March 14th. My wife's birthday is March 18th. The pool tournament was in March and it was our first time to Vegas. I've been sober for four or five, I don't, I, several months, and um, we go to Vegas, and we had talked about it, and I was going to have a couple of drinks, and we we're going to see what all happened. And the first night we were getting there, or first night we got there, me and my wife actually got into like a, a an argument, a disagreement, and like as we were about to pour glasses of wine, and I had I, didn't, I had recognized that the big reason that I, the big cause for my drinking was, I. Uh, for em- emotional distress like i always drink to suppress the emotions right and as i'm sitting here wine bottle corked out and everything and about to pour this glass of wine and i realize we're in a fight and i have this thing and i'm like no i'm not going to drink right now this is why i used to always drink i'm not going to drink my emotions are high blah blah blah. so i put the cork back in the bottle um, we went to bed woke up the next day tournament starts and Then still kind of in my head, the internal dialogue, I was like, well, I didn't drink for that last night. Everything's good. Me and my wife are good now. And so I I started drinking and then the night kind of went to shit. Um, And the next morning, of course, I drank too much. The next morning, woke up and then had this epiphany of like, I was aware of my thoughts when I was drinking and I was able to see the radical shift in priorities, in my life, like, like it went from us having a good time. We were going to a Cirque du Soleil show um, to like walking around this casino with a short amount of time before we start trying to find somewhere to get a drink. And my wife's feet are hurting because she's in heels and she's trying to keep up. And, and I'm trying to find a drink before we go sit down in this show. And right. seeing that how it took over my priorities and my purpose and everything. Oh, and that that whole experience also showed me that, okay, I had kind of checked off that I could not drink uh, when emotions were involved. I I couldn't do that. I'd already recognized that. And so that's like the night I put the cork back in the bottle. But then the next day, everything was perfect. You know, wife, our relationship was great. We were doing good. I was playing good in the pool tournament. And this was supposed to just be your normal Casual drinking how one should be able to enjoy themselves when drinking and right. it completely went to shit right, and right. so Then I had the two together to where I was like, okay I can't drink for any kind of emotional reasons and I can't drink just to have fun and I was able to I guess somehow convince my subconscious that My life is infinitely better without it Right.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I for me the the same thing you know uh I had a relapse uh I was a few months sober when I relapsed and um you know but I think my relapse was mainly because I I didn't I I was only treating like you said the symptoms I did when I first decided that I wanted to become sober because I was told you know oh you need to fix this you need to you know you need to work on your, your drinking and your drinking is a problem. So, you know, yeah, I was able to go get it treated and I was able to stay sober for a while. And, but my underlying issue, as you like said, uh, my depression wasn't gone. Like I was still dealing with depression. I was dealing with severe anxiety. I was on medication for both uh, and trying to treat that and just trying to find the right medication. And through that process, you know, um, I was going through a divorce and um, trying to be able to see my kids and it was just all too much. And I think, you know, I relate to that that thing about emotions that you mentioned, you know, you can't drink um, when, when you're having these certain emotions. And I fell into that trap and drank during those emotions, which made things even worse in my life, you know, to the point where. Uh, I wasn't able to see my kids for a very long time until I can, like, kind of get myself together again. And after that, I focused more on the depression. I started learning more, a lot more about mental health and how it affects me and how it affects other people and stuff. Uh, I, you know, went as far as going and buying the DSM-5, which I probably could have found it used somewhere for a lot cheaper, but I don't know why I went for the brand-new... Uh, book and it cost me like an arm and a leg and um, but just being able to get over those things helped a lot as well I did suffer a little bit with the white knuckling for quite a while and I realized why that was and I think you were able to find that a lot sooner than I was able to um, was the whole finding I guess meaning Uh, like you said the pool uh, and the, uh, neuroscience. And for me, I didn't really have anything after I was able to treat the alcoholism and I was able to treat, uh, my mental health issues. I, I didn't really feel like I had a purpose in anything, um, or a reason to kind of, you know, uh, so I, the thought of alcohol was always on my mind of, well, you know, maybe it wouldn't be too bad to have a drink, here and there maybe i can't control myself and i would talk a lot about it with my my wife now um you know i'm i, I probably in the two years that we've been married in three years that we've been together I, I probably asked her about a dozen times hey what do you think if i just had a drink you know what maybe it won't hurt maybe you can help me and say hey stop here and she would always tell me no you know i kind of like you sober, you know, I know the history, and I've heard the history from other people about how you were when you were drinking, you know, let's just stay sober, you know, it's not a problem for me. And it wasn't until I found meaning, which was, you know, the politics and uh, the libertarian movement that, uh, and now this podcast is, now it's a lot easier. I don't have those cravings
1: pretty not
0: much
1: yet. anymore because alcohol is excellent at filling the void of a purpose um, you know right. and, and so when you don't have that purpose and you don't have a goal and you don't have a reason to do things and you're just bored with life not in the physical moment but with just your life alcohol it, it gladly fills that void and it just makes the void even bigger and bigger and bigger but it keeps filling it
0: <laughs> right so thank you and i talked about this before about making drugs legal is that kind of still your your idea
1: absolutely i believe all drugs should be legal
0: awesome Let's see i'm glad that we're so we haven't talked in a while in a few months so no <laughs> i
1: haven't all we're doing uh, with drug prohibition is facilitating the black market, making the market, black market profitable. The only reason it exists is because we created it with making these things illegal. Uh, they haven't gone anywhere and they're not going anywhere. We have maximum security prisons that we can't keep them out of. Uh, they're not going to go anywhere and we're pouring God awful amount of money into trying to stop this, uh, and it, we're not it's not going anywhere and all we're doing is uh, creating that the negative stigmas and it's we're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, everything that we're, we're so f- terrified of with drugs and alcohol we're creating it with the stigma with the black market you know uh, th- there's no potency or ingredient labels there's no regulation the yeah, you don't see Budweiser and Bud Light shooting each other up in the streets for turf, you know, Um, and we kind of we recognized that we couldn't control alcohol with the prohibition in the 20s. And we were quick to realize our mistake and let that go. But then we kept all these other ones with drugs and stuff. And then you have places like Portugal that have decriminalized and and you can see the societal and cultural effects that the positive cultural effects that it's having um we, we give you a drug we, we give you a drug charge we throw you in prison to teach you how to be a productive member of society again but yet we let you out with a record and probation and we make it impossible for you to be a productive member and it's uh, right. the, the the whole thing is just uh, i saw a picture once of a snake eating its own tail and that's exactly that's like the best physical representation of what we're doing by prohibiting drug, drugs it's compl- it's destroyed stunted uh, Beyond belief, our research into this stuff—we're uh, having all the MDMA, LSD, psilocybin. We're starting to see again huge uh, psychological benefits and possibilities with it. Uh, the the addiction issue as itself, the research and study on it is been completely stunted with this. It, it, it's it's dumb. It's it's a very primitive thing. Uh, to, right. to, to the This. Prohibition of drugs, uh, something that I can do in my house and it does not affect my neighbor, the libertarian part of it's not affecting anybody. And and we've had tons of uh, successful, admirable, respectable people throughout our our country alone that have used drugs that we are now schedule one and schedule two. You can be a productive member of society. And still D- use drugs. That's that's my belief. Um, we've accepted, we we've deemed alcohol as an, an acceptable risk, but yet it's the number two leading preventable cause of death in America. You know, and number right. one is the number one is tobacco, and that's another acceptable risk. You got all these other drugs that are at the very bottom, and, and we've deemed those as not acceptable.
0: Right. And, uh, I I think it's dumb. <laughs> I uh, And I 100% agree. Um, you know, and the other thing, too, with uh, the prohibition, it causes, there's no, like, way to really tell what, you know, if you're a black market buyer uh, and buying illegal drugs, you, there's no way to know what you're buying. And you could be buying something potentially very dangerous for you. You know, you could be thinking that you're just buying LSD, you know, and as you say, there is some really good medical properties, um, and you you go with that mentality buying it from the black market, but then you might not be getting what you're thinking you're buying. If it was open, you always know, as you said, uh, you know, with the example of Budweiser, when you go buy Budweiser, you know you're getting a beer, uh, you know, you know that there's nothing else in it, you know, you know that. Um, there's no other poisons, and it's the, safe.
1: And the the idea, the purpose of the prohibition was to discourage or deter the use of them. Well, it's not. You know, we're experiencing a drug epidemic right now. We've had multiple drug epidemics since we were in a drug epidemic when it started in the 60s. They haven't gone anywhere. You know, you look at our right. use compared to other countries. Our drug use is still top five across the board you look at our overdoses and our deaths we're still leading like right so it's not working so if even if this whole legalizing thing doesn't have the beautiful outcome that you and i think it might it can't be worse than what we're doing now you know exactly we're, we're trillions of dollars in debt and we're pouring more into it and we're just getting worse results uh right the, Einstein saying about doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome is the definition of insanity. We've been doing this for decades now. Right. It's insane. And we're we we every year we invest more money into the budget, and we give more money for it, and we expect a different outcome. And we get the same outcome every year. The drug problem gets worse. Mm-hmm. And yet every year we do the same thing.
0: Right. It only makes sense, and, and you know, I was just talking about this with somebody earlier, you know. It just amazes me that people cannot really – the people that are so strongly against – and I'm not talking about politicians or government. I'm just talking about, you know, the, the average person. And there's so many that are like would be against legalizing drugs, and it just surprises me, I guess, that they cannot see – the negative effect of prohibition, right? And how they cannot see how there is this corruption uh, in government for the reasons why they're prohibited. Obviously, the the government makes money, you know, off of this. Uh, The people in government make money off of this with keeping people in jail. The body count in in our um, prison system is the highest in the world. They make money off of that. Uh, these A lot of these prisons are privatized. A lot of these politicians have stakes into these uh, prisons through either lobbying or, you know,
1: it having shareholdings say, in them. It should say enough whenever you find out that one of the largest, like, activists in the prohibition of marijuana is the guards of the prison systems in California. Exactly. Like they're, 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 that, that should be like, all right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty you obvious. You should see that as... It's a it's a scam, and, um, you know, like you said, you would think it's pretty obvious, but it's not. And then the argument usually is, well, if we make it all legal, then, you know, you're going to be hurting our kids, and, you know.
1: Because drugs, because they can't get them now.
0: Right, I mean, exactly, you know.
1: They, and if they, they don't get
0: drugs, they're getting alcohol, and if they're not getting alcohol, they're uh, huffing uh, paint cans. If they're not helping paint cans, they're helping their own shit. You know, um, kids are gonna do what they're gonna do, and to blame it on something else other than your your parenting skills is just shifting the blame. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, definitely prohibition does not work. And you know, I say this, and people look at me like I'm crazy. And there's a lot of people that. Believe that. Uh, Believe that prohibition doesn't work. We 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 are seeing it a lot more now. A lot more people are coming out saying that, you know, go ahead and legalize marijuana. They're being a lot more accepting. I would just like to see at some point where we're just kind of accepting with all drugs and just know, hey, just like you and I know that, okay, alcohol doesn't work for us for other people to just get to that point where they can say, Hey, you know, LSE doesn't work for me. Uh, marijuana doesn't work for me. Uh, cocaine doesn't work for me, whatever the, the, the poison is, you know, that it doesn't work for them.
1: Well, and, uh, and I think there could be huge benefits of reducing the stigma to where it's like the only thing that is socially acceptable at, at the moment is alcohol. Uh, that is the only socially acceptable way to alter your consciousness in a group basically. Uh, we, you see business meetings, you see all kind of things based around this and, and all you can do that with is alcohol. And that's because of the negative stigma we have to all the other drugs. Um, right. if we, if we could shift that to where you're not forcing your, your drug addicts to alleyways or to crack houses that they could do it. <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't need to be like a heroin bar, but but it, it right. wasn't so shunned, and it wasn't so just viewed as, like, you're a piece of shit, you're you're worthless, and you you don't benefit society in any way because you do the drugs. That's the way it's viewed right. now. And so we force them into that corner. All they're allowed to do is associate with other drug addicts and other crack or heroin addicts. That's all they can do. And I feel like if we could open that up and let them, let them out, let them breathe, so to speak, of they could still be... I don't know. We
0: can still be productive members of society and we can a lot easier identify, you know, those that do have problems. You know, just as we, you know, we're now more accepting and the idea that alcoholism is a thing and we're now we are a lot easier able to identify who those people are that need help. Like you said, with drug addicts, you know, for illicit drugs, it's a lot harder. They do it in, you know, in the back alleys. They'll do it in their homes. The next thing you know, you know, they're overdosing, and we're not able to identify these issues because it's so unaccepted and so hidden. If it was out in the open, we can we can see who, who needs help. And just like alcohol, I believe that there are a lot of people that would be able to do drugs and not affect them the same way uh, negatively. We see that with marijuana now that is uh, getting legalized in a lot of places, and you see some people that can, that that doesn't really affect them as much, uh, if at all, and you see other people that, you know, they get pretty darn stoned. From what I've been told, that, that also has to do with what kind of marijuana you might smoke, but... Uh, and-
1: surprisingly genetics
0: yeah exactly and um so yeah i would like to see you know for uh less and less prohibition i think we're getting better at it i think that um anti-prohibition movement has a big win with uh with marijuana getting legalized in more and more places uh it's still an uphill battle Uh, I was talking in one of my episodes about how, you know, even though it's legal in California, there's actually a lot of municipalities that decided that no, we're still going to prohibit it. And, uh, you know, passed regulations and laws, uh, one being an example is Bakersfield, where, you know, it's not not legal to sell marijuana in Bakersfield. Um, And it's silly because... People are going. They think that it's going to stop people from smoking, and all they're going to do is go to the very next city over and purchase marijuana, smoke it there, or bring it back and smoke it in Bakersfield, whatever. And it's just a bad strategy. Uh, Bakersfield, which is a city that is so poor, and, you know, uh, could benefit greatly from the business of selling marijuana and, you know, produce uh, a stronger economy through it. Yet They're just giving that to the city right next to them, you know, take They're taking all the business over there. So now that city is going to be a lot more productive and a lot more successful and better eco- economically than Bakersfield, which makes no sense to me. So
1: that, that was kind of my, uh, I thought, the nation would uh, kind of see that of, you know, Colorado had its estimated annual uh, profit in the first quarter whenever they legalized. And it's like, I really thought that once the other con- states saw that, too, we could start moving in the nation. You know, we're all about America is great at regulating and profiting. And if they would just mm-hmm. regulate and profit this drug industry, they could, they could, we could get feel the profits instead of right. the cartel. And yeah, that's that's this whole border issue. All of this is based around the fucking black market. And yeah, uh, and it,
0: <laughs> it, <sighs> you would think it would be like completely obvious, but obviously there's people that are benefiting from that prohibition, and that's what I think the average Joe needs to realize. Like. You know, we're seeing it being successful in certain states. Why Why isn't the, you know, big government, why can't they see this? And it's because they're protecting their assets. So,
1: And that's what's scary is whenever you think that the assets are greater than the assets of legalizing. You know what right. I mean? We, mm-hmm. see, we, we, we can see how much we can profit off of this um, if we legalize but they won't do it because their profits are so much greater. Right. That's, that's scary.
0: Yep. It is.
1: Well, thanks so
0: much for this discussion. Uh, we're running out of time and, and yeah, it's nice to see you again, man. You and I keep in touch, but we get busy with our lives and we don't talk as much anymore. Being in a different state, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, man. I, I it, it, I learned so much from you. Um and yeah. So I appreciate it. And thanks for being on the podcast. Uh hopefully you had fun with it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, call me uh, back sometime.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'll probably bring you in for, you know, uh kind of I, I have a plan to like bring people back in for like follow up uh episodes and stuff like that. So I'll let you know definitely. Especially now you're gonna become a, a neuroscience a scientist. So you know Best plan. definitely yeah, definitely good to have that resource. So all right, man.
1: I appreciate it. It was a pleasure.
0: Yep. Yeah. Thanks.
1: Have a good one.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Until next time, this is Pace and Freedom. Almost forgot to give shout-outs to our new patrons. Thank you, Gerald Thomas, also known as JT, and Jim Pace. Welcome to the Patreon family. I hope you enjoy the special content.